Welcome to New York's Finest, Retired and Unfiltered Podcast. The mission of this podcast is to explore the life and experiences of those who at one time held a front row ticket to the greatest show on earth, policing the streets of New York City. This show hosts a wide variety of guests from all walks of life and professions, but remains centered around introducing retired members of the NYPD to our audience while having real unfiltered discussions. Please tune in each week and like and subscribe to hear true crime stories and opinions on past and present events like you've never heard them before. A nation that separates its scholars from its warriors will have its laws made by cowards and its wars fought by fools. Our guest today is a warrior, a scholar, and a gentleman. He's a 22-year law enforcement veteran. He's a sergeant-at-arms at the Suffolk County PBA. He's a 30-year combat veteran, a highly decorated veteran. He is a recipient of the Bronze Star and many other medals. His resume goes on and on. It's impressive. It's He's a true American, a true patriot, and he's a true voice for the men and women of law enforcement. He is the author of Justified Deadly Force and the Myth of Systemic Racism. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to New York's Finest Retired and Unfiltered Podcast. I'd like to introduce our guest for today, Mike Simonelli. Mike, thank you, my brother. Thank you very much, John and Eric, for uh, letting me be on your program. And thank you for what you're doing, being unfiltered and getting the word out there. Now that you guys are retired and uh, you don't have to worry about any retribution, it's great to have you out there. We appreciate it. And of All course, right. thank my you both for your service, lieutenants. And we got a double-served veteran here from... Uh, Iraqi Freedom Marine. Outstanding. Seppa Fye. Hey, Mike, thank you so much for coming on. I, I just want to say, I read your resume. I am super impressed. I mean, you thank embody, you. you you really do. You embody what we expect of an American hero. I mean, your resume is just super impressive, I me mean, from top to bottom. I, I When I read it, I was like, wow. The next line was getting better. The next line after that was better. <laughs> Jeez, well, did he go to the moon too? <laughs> so, <laughs> but, that's funny. So, why don't we just go into it? Just uh, if you can tell us where you grew up, you know, what your childhood was like, and what made you become a cop, or was it just an option? I- I'm okay. curious. Uh, I grew up in Brooklyn, Sheepshead Bay, back in the '70s. Um, public schools all the way. Uh, blue, blue collar family. My father was a construction worker, iron worker to be exact, in local 580. He rose up through the ranks um, and be, ultimately became president and business agent there. Mom was a traditional mother at the time, housekeeper. Ended up doing like part time work at the store down the street. But uh, my brother and I were lucky. We'd get home. Mom would be there. Dinners, you know, cooking, smelled delicious. The whole works. So you know, just a regular family life. Uh, but dad, I always remember in the house where his medals were on the wall from Vietnam. He was, I think, drafted for the army, but then he volunteered to go to Vietnam. He was supposed to go to Germany or something like his brother. And uh, I just, I would always see that. And my brother and I both always wanted to go in the military since we were little. And um, dad being a soldier on the ground, he didn't really want me to go that route, I guess. So uh, me kind of being an academic nerd in some ways, pushing me <laughs> to the officer route academies. 
So probably because Top Gun was big at the time. I, I just wanted to go to combat and serve my country. Top Gun was big. Air Force Academy's got the most pilots. All right, I'm going to go there. And by, by luck, I ended up getting into the academy. Uh, so I went there. But by bad luck, I was a class of 93. The Cold War ended, I want to say, around 1990. Um, so with that was a reduction in the military and pilots, et cetera. So my class was the first class in history where not everybody who was pilot qualified got to go to pilot school. So I was the bottom of my class towards it because I went in thinking, oh, I just got to graduate and then I'm going to fly. So I did not fly, but I had a great career. Uh, three years in Italy, I was stationed at Aviano Air Base. We have two fighter wings there. From there, I went to Saudi Arabia, did a four-month stint as the comptroller. And uh, then I finally, I got out because the military wouldn't give me an MOS where I felt like a soldier. So I came home to New York and really my desire was to get on the DEA. I applied to all the alphabet jobs and it was taking so long, I applied to NYPD in Suffolk County. My parents told me go to Suffolk. I had no, no idea where I was going. It was all the way out east. But um, I ended up getting on, on New York first. It, what cracks me, up, cracks me up about the city, as I went into the precinct to apply, it's <laughs> like, are you sure you want to do this? It's like trying to talk me out of it. I'm like, guys, you guys are city cops. What are you, what are you trying to do here? But I, that ended up being the first job I got on. But as uh, unfortunate or luck would have it, Suffolk called six months later, and when Suffolk calls, you don't say no. It's, it's a phenomenal job. We have a phenomenal union. Uh, the, the electeds out here, for the most part, support us, and the public definitely does. So it's a, it's a world of difference from what you guys go through, and I truly feel for what you guys go through in the city. Because, I mean, you have literal socialists on your city council, so it's out of control. Um, but... So I, I get on the job and uh, I end up getting hurt in the academy. So when the DEA finally does call, I had to turn it down. And uh, I've been at Suffolk ever since. Uh, it's been 22 years, like you said. But while I was going through that process, I switched over to the Army National Guard. That was 98. And then come 9-11, I was down there close to ground zero. We were midnight talk operators for you know coordinating efforts. Um, so I don't call myself a hero for any means for 9-11. I didn't do anything heroic. The, the cops and the firefighters, city cops um, down there, you guys did the real work. Uh, we were just there coordinating stuff. It was an amazing feeling, though, going down to uh, the site and all the civilians that would be lined up, giving everybody water bottles, lunches, socks, just clapping, really appreciative of the first responders. That was really nice to see how the whole country really came together behind us at that point, which we would then see again with COVID until Floyd happened and everything went upside down, of course. But uh, then after 9-11, I had a buddy who was in a Army Civil Affairs Special Operations Unit. He said, Mike, uh, my unit's going to be invading Iraq, you know, in like six months or whatever. So I was like, are you kidding me? He's like, no, I'm serious. <laughs> so I put my favors in. I switched into his unit. And sure enough, with two weeks of Army training, I was a trained civil affairs officer invading the country. And uh, you know, the rest was history. In 2010, I went back to Afghanistan, did a, did a year there, finally retired in 2019, and now strictly doing police work. Wow. And, you know, activists for our police. No, you absolutely do. That's, that's very impressive. I, I, know, I know Eric wants to hug you right now because I could say I'm <laughs> 
It's seriously, dude. Thank you. Thank you for your service. <laughs> thank you for your service to the country. Thank you for My your pleasure. service to the people of Suffolk. You know, I we would have loved to have you in the NYPD. Honestly, you would. I'm, I'm, sure, you, I'm sure you would. You would. You know, you would have fit right in with all of us. Yeah. Um, what 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 drove you to start writing? I mean, you authored a book. You wrote several articles that are amazing in the New York. Thank Post, you. Constantly popping up. I mean, you are a great voice. You know, and and you know that's why we wanted to have you on here. I mean, I sent your article to Eric before I even told him that I, that I had interacted with you on social media, and he's yeah. like, "Oh my god, it's amazing! We got to get this guy on." So, like, what made you start to write? Like, what like what what, what drove you? Uh. I would write stuff here and there. I'm not a big social media guy, but occasionally I would go on Facebook and I would see people posting stupid stuff about police. And so I would try to give them some facts. And um, after the whole George Floyd thing happened, it was just out of control. And I got sick of trying to educate one person here and there and seeing it was totally a waste of time. So I was like, you know what? I need to, I need to have a reference that I could throw out to them that we could all use to show people what is the actual facts. Just by chance, right before Floyd happened, January through April, I had done my master's degree thesis on deadly police shootings and racial bias. However, the racial bias, not being by the police, but what I found was it was by the press, the protesters and the politicians. So I had a scientific research uh, article project right in my hands, like 80 pages. So after Floyd happened, I took that and I, that was the base of the book. And uh, I just grew on it. And what I then did was I analyzed deadly police shootings of unarmed people, which is what we always take the most heat about, and then the felonious murders of police. And I used basically the same parameters. So like, if this is re replicable. Anybody could do their own research, and they're going to come up basically with what I found. Because I'm looking at what's important. When you hear about a, a police incident, a deadly police incident, what is the press harping on? Person's age, where it was, and their race, if it's a minority. Because if it's not a minority, let's be honest, it's not even making the news. But what's really important, what's really important is criminal activity. Does the person have warrants or are they conducting a crime at that time? Are they on drugs or, so, or uh, some kind of substance, mental illness, and or suicidal, su wanting to get suicide by cop? And of course, compliance. And I found the same things were, were found when cops are getting killed and when cops are forced to use deadly force on unarmed people. They're dealing mostly with people that are EDPs, high on drugs, committing crimes, and not being compliant. That's it right there. Race has nothing to do with it. So, I mean, we'll get into later with, with numbers and how ridiculous it is that we are being portrayed as being racist or brutal when it comes to the use of deadly force because the numbers just do not support it. And, and the facts don't, and the individual stories don't. So I have an individual story on every cop killed in, the, in that two years in this book, and then I keep it up with my website and you can see it. It's, it's black and white, plain and simple. I'm so glad to hear that from you. John and I have made the argument that particularly the incident that happened in Staten Island that's been viral, where the police officer had to take action by deploying punches. And, and we've we've compared this to to a game. And, and we're saying right now, when you're when you're policing, you're part of a game. But unfortunately, not every game has the same rules. So mm -hmm. 
we had an incident that was similar. It was a, and we're, John and I are siding with both incidents that the police officers acted professionally and took the action appropriately. Right. In the other case, it was a black black police officer, and we can almost it, almost a mirror image of what happened, where a black police officer was punched in the face. He deployed punches, took action, and no one said boo. I, I mean, the mayor backed him; he was supported. But here we have an incident where there's a white police officer punching a female minority, and that's what John and I would have been talking about with the identity politics, because right. you said it, because her race. And her gender and her age, and you just said all those three things. You 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 hit every point, every bullet on that yeah. have played a major role. So it, she was not viewed as a perpetrator. To me, she's a perpetrator, right? Despite her age, despite her gender, she's a perpetrator. At that point, taking action, and he's a police officer that has to quell a problem. And, and you're 100 percent right. And the narrative has been driven by identity politics, race, age, gender. And it's for both sides, because in the case with a black police officer, that's the narrative. So we didn't hear about it. But now because it's a white police officer, right. it's sexy. It, it, it makes the news. With the black police officer, it's not sexy. So I, I really am impressed. What i like to ask, what, what was your control method to say, okay, this is my control method to compare to? Is it, is it a case of a white police officer? Is it a case? Uh, how, how do you, how, what was your control method to compare your scientific analysis? Well, actually, I, I used a few different um, research methods. So first I did a uh, quantitative analysis. I looked at the USA Today newspaper, front cover stories, and the teasers. Teasers are stories that, you know, there's a few lines and then you go further into the newspaper, they talk about it. So for four years, 2015 to 2018, I, I documented how many were about deadly police incidents, how many were positive police stories, how many were about officers killed in the line of duty, and how many were about blacks being killed by other blacks. Because there's also that allegation from the left saying, oh, you only hear about black people when, when they're killing each other. They try to make it seem like we're always doing that, and um, they, they blow it out of proportion. So I wanted to see, all right, what, what are the numbers? What I found, numbers are out of control. Let's see. Out of eight, I found 82 stories about deadly police shootings in those four years, which let me give you the, the run-up though. More importantly, during those four years, and I used the Washington Post database because that was a database that was built after the Michael Brown shooting where they tried to say, this is how we're gonna be a watchdog on you. So I used their data against them because the facts support us. From that database, 2015 to 2018, uh, see, I, I threw in uh, 2020 in there. Let me see, trying to, off the top of my head, 3,000 3, deadly police shootings. Um, let's say there was 900 that were uh, white, white race. It, it was two to one, whites to blacks. So, so let's say 990 whites were killed, 500 or four something blacks were killed. So at two to one, that's how many the shootings were racially. But what they showed in the front page of USA Today, out of those 82 stories, they named 132 black subjects um, compared to one white subject. And that story that had the white subject was about two black subjects that were, that were killed. 
So it's a hundred percent. They talk about it's, it's a disparity that the police are killing black people at 26% of their shootings versus 13% of their population. Well, here it is, 100% of their reporting is on black shoot on black shootings or blacks being shot by us. Wow. Sick. Yeah. And, and then, you know, it, it shows it further on in, in my book with more detail. And it talks about some particular stories. I right, hear it. It was 948 blacks were killed compared to 1,880 whites. So you see, like I was saying, it's two to one. But think about that, 1,880 whites, and they only mentioned one of them while talking about two other two black guys. What was the other method then? So that, that, all right, that was one. The other one, so then I looked at the legacy and cable news. And what I wanted to compare was how many stories they would have of, I took four, four black people killed by the police, four white people killed by the police, and then four cops felonious murdered. But I want to see who would get more press. And I even analyzed it kind of separately with Fox News because the left would allege that, you know, Fox is so biased. They don't show stuff, um, you know, when black people are getting shot or they're so pro-police or they're racist. So I looked at the numbers and the numbers actually show that all the cable networks show, I think, at a rate of six to one, blacks, the stories of the black guys being shot versus the white versus the police. But what's, out, what's even more outstanding about that is I used four black subjects that are actually armed. I used Alton Sterling, Philando Castile, Keith Lamont Scott, I think that was South Carolina, and uh, Charlotte Mecklenburg. He actually yeah. had, a, he had the gun in his hand in the parking lot, shot by another black, by a black officer. And then they also show video early on of him that, that day by a, a store where they could see the weapon. So there's no contesting it. And then Akai Gurley, who you guys are familiar with, he wasn't even shot. That was a ricochet from an accidental discharge by a rookie officer doing the stairwell search. So those are the four black subjects I used. Then for the white ones, I used four actual unarmed ones. One who I go into a deep case study, Daniel Shaver, who was he was pretty much, um, it was like a sniper killing him, an officer with an M16 in a hallway. It was ridiculous. Even, uh, it was, I think, what a black athlete said on Twitter. In, I think I heard that story. It, yeah, because it, there was some video that they showed of it. Yes. And he's like, in the most uh, egregious assassinations of people by the police, this is the worst one I've ever seen. And the, the guy ended up, the cop ended up being charged, but ultimately found not guilty because he was able to say, you know, possibly he was reaching for a gun as he stumbled while he was drunk following my commands. It was ridiculous. But that was, that's, I'm showing you the, the quality of the white subject I used. And then the four officers I used, you have uh, Mio Sotis Familia, the first NYPD officer killed in the line of duty since 9-11. I mean, that right, right alone, she should get more uh, press publicity than everybody. And then yes. was uh, Officer Wen Jin Liu, who was killed along with Rafael Ramos and retribution for the Michael Brown shooting. Another one with two cops being killed should have got more publicity. Then Corporal Montrell Jackson, who was murdered as a revenge shooting for the um, Philando Castile and Alton Sterling shootings that were both justified, and Patrolman LaCorey Tate. So the numbers on those, it was um, like 600. Each um, outlet gave 600 stories to the black subjects versus 
maybe 400 for the police and 100 for the white subjects. The only white subject that got a decent amount was a, a woman, a white woman, Justin Damon. And she only got that much because she was a dual citizen with Australia. So the Australian prime minister chimed in and it became kind of an international incident. And also mm -hmm. the cop ended up getting charged and convicted, which is pretty rare, but it was very egregious because if you're not familiar with the incident, it was Minnesota. She calls 911 calling for help because she hears a woman screaming in the, in the alleyway. Well, when the police get there, she approaches the vehicle in her bathrobe, not threatening. And the officer um, in the passenger seat, he was so scared by her coming up to the car that he, across his partner, shot, hit her in the stomach, ended up killing her. And he was a, I think, a Somali-American who had already gotten a lot of publicity because he was, I think, uh, the first Somali-American police officer there. So he's like the darling over there. So it got a lot of media for all those reasons, but still didn't even compare to the press that these other four subjects that were armed got just because they were black. Mike, that was I, I got to ask you one question. Yeah. How'd you get it published? All right. Well, I published <laughs> it myself. You did it yourself. Well, it's a press company, Palmetto. They, they publish it with you. So what I mean by myself is I'm out of pocket on it. Yeah. Yeah. Because as you can see from the media, not jumping all over my book, as I try to push it, nobody wants to touch it because as easy it is for them to call us racist, they have an issue with acknowledging that we're not actually racist, <laughs> which you would think, you think about the outrage with George Floyd, everybody's up in arms, they're protesting, they're destroying buildings, businesses, because they believe the police is systemically racist. But here it is, I'm showing you, hey, this is good news. The police aren't systemically racist, and they're not just randomly shooting people of any color out of the blue. But nobody wants to hear it. At least nobody in power, in you know, political world, in the mainstream press. So that's why I really do. I think the New York Post has been great getting my two articles out there. Law Enforcement Times, uh, Law Enforcement Today. I'm sorry, Kyle, who's the editor there. He's been great. He's been publishing my work, and you for having me on because this is how we have to spread the truth. So basically, what, what we what we just got here is to, uh, whites are killed by the police two to one, right? Whites are right. killed. White subjects are killed by the police two to one as opposed to black. Uh, yes. But black subjects are in the media almost five times more or six times more than 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 what they get sick, almost six times more media coverage. It's like so, something around that. Right. It's, it's, would I be accurate uh, saying that? Like 132 times more. 132 times more. <laughs> yeah, because you said it was 132 to 1, right? Oh, yeah, I'm sorry. I missed it. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. It was 82 I'm sorry. I'm paying attention. <laughs> All right, sorry. He was giving a lot of info. I was like, so 132 <laughs> times more coverage yeah. for, for a black suspect being killed by the police and, and white subjects get zero coverage. And that's across the board using Fox news, using, you know, the, the racist Fox news. And, and, well, and no, the, the 132 times was the USA today study in the, the cable news story st study. It was better, but it was still uh, definitely slanted towards media coverage of the black subjects. 
which I mean, I don't want to open my book and go through the pages here. Oh, yeah. You'll see it when you get it. Yeah. It's scientifically proven. I mean, that the hypothesis was accepted by the university, got a great grade and all that. Um, and I used another scientific method was two case studies. And in the case studies, I compared the Michael Brown shooting against the Justin Damon one, the one from Australia that I told you about, then Alton Sterling versus Daniel Shaver, who was the guy in Arizona that got shot by the cop with the M4. And, and in those case studies, I actually call out what the media was reporting, how biased the media reporting was, how they were hiding stuff, how they didn't talk about in the Michael Brown shooting that these witnesses came out in favor of the officer, witnesses who said, look, I don't even like the cops, but if that was me, I would have shot Michael Brown way before the cop did. Stuff like that, that they buried. And in instead, they would keep talking about the lies from his co-accomplice in that strong arm robbery. Mike, when you do your studies, when you have a control method, do you do you always use the same media outlets so that you have uh, so your studies comparable? I mean, which media outlets? Do, and if you did, which media outlets did you use? Okay, uh, I'm sorry I didn't mention that for no, the cable no, news. I, I'm, I'm, I'm listening. <laughs> no, a great question. Yeah, sometimes I forget what you know what I've said and haven't said. No, this I is use... listen, Mike. This is fascinating. It's just extremely present because this is factual and it's the truth. That's what we're here. We're trying to seek the truth. Thank you. I'm super impressed. Uh, that you know, I was listening to you guys earlier when you were talking about the recent outrage over the what I want to say is the uh, excited delirium death or possible overdose in California. Yes. What you guys were talking about, I was like, that is exactly. You guys are going to read my book and be like, I could have wrote this. I, I know <laughs> this. I said this. It was all the stuff that you guys are talking you're, about. You're a super, I, you're a super impressive guy. I don't know if I could have wrote it. I can probably, I can talk about it with John. I, I don't know if I can write it, but I'll try. <laughs> and obviously, I'm not good at math, so. <laughs> <laughs> right, I'm not really either. Thanks, John. Wait, wait, two to one, two. <laughs> <What's up? laughs> so I used ABC, CBS, NBC, and then CNN, MSNBC, and Fox News. Those were the six cable outlets that I used. So the USA Today study was all USA Today. The cable news was those six. And then the case studies was all a combination of newspapers, uh, cable news, whatever I could find, like route routers, Associated Press, big names. I'm not, I'm not cherry picking trying to go to a left wing or a right wing website. So keeping it fair. That's it. That's it. Did any of, the, any of those news media outlets contact you? In, in, in retribution, or at least, or tr try to defend themselves. Was there, was there any contact from them? No, zero. Really? Yeah. That to me, that, that to me, that that says they're actually they're they're afraid to even even speak to you about it. I, I I'm shocked. I I, th I would think that at least one of them would call. At least one would reach out to you, like, wait a minute, you know, or at least at least Fox would say, wait a minute, these are the numbers you got. We need to put this out there. Well, and even Fox, like I, I don't necessarily slam them because what I point out is it's kind of a self-perpetuating thing where you have somebody who's protesting, so that gets a news story. The politician comments on it, that gets a news story. So it goes round and round. The more news stories, the more people get upset about it, the more they protest, the more the politicians comment on it. So there, in some aspects, like Fox is just covering what is actually news. The problem is, 
it's across the board that these are the incidents that make the news and the other ones, they don't. And that includes Latinos, Asians, Arab Americans, anybody else. It's this whole, it goes back to the oppression narrative of white supremacy, which they are using to try to divide our country and bring us down. They're doing it with the police. They're doing it in the schools with what they're teaching the children. They're doing it with laws like uh, that Texas Congresswoman Sheila Jackson Lee is trying to make a hate crime law to say anything. If you're white about somebody else, that could be perceived as hateful. Well, jo- me and John are white supremacists. At least according to the Cop Watch Patrol Unit in various <laughs> other <laughs> I'm Jewish. I don't even know if they know that. I'm Jewish. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Mike, so... I, so you, so your last piece in uh, uh, that you wrote in the New York Post, it's about the Cambridge police, right? Yes. That, that shooting was on, uh, well, the Post article was on January 15th. The shooting was on January 4th, right? Um, I believe so. I could be wrong with that. But you, you highlight in there, yeah. this is, what well, that's right, right? Yeah, January 4th, you got it. January 4th, right? So... I mean, me and Eric were talking offline, and we, and we actually spoke about this too. You know, Cambridge is 2009, July 2009, Harvard professor Harry Lewis Gates Jr., right? He gets stopped by the police there. He gets stopped by a right. police sergeant there. I think, right. you know, me and Eric both say that that was a pivotal moment in policing history, and it's something that your article actually highlights too. And now yes. this. Now we have a shooting today that comes past that. What's your feelings about the incident in 2009? And then what leads you to write your article? And if you could just walk us through a little bit of your article, like what? Absolutely. It's all connected. It's the genesis. What we just saw happen or happening right now in Cambridge started in Cambridge in, uh, what was that? 2009. 2009, right? I, I remember because 2010 was my deployment. I was with a Cambridge cop is on my deployment. As we're in pre-training, he's telling me what's going on in Cambridge. It's like, oh my God, no kidding. So now I see this come around. But yeah, back in 2009, the president of the United States, the most powerful man in, in the world, weighed in on a local police issue of, of something that nobody should have ever heard of outside of Cambridge, where... Somebody, the police were called for a possible break-in. Cops get there. The man didn't immediately identify himself, I believe. And then he became combative. And at that point, he got disconned. So had he complied, just acted like a gentleman, that would have never happened. Like every incident that you got a complaint on, Eric, and has come to deadly force that our our guys and girls have issues with, it all stems from noncompliance. Had the professor just been compliant, he would have shown his ID, cop would have matched it up, that would be the end of it. But that didn't happen. But regardless, that never should have been commented on by the president of the United States. But he did. Instead of being the great unifier that everybody hoped he would be as the first black president, he ended up being the great divider. And he started, that was the first salvo on the war against police right then and there. Eric, you and remember so you, what he said, right? Huh? What's that? Eric, you remember what he said? Obama? Oh, he said that the police acted stupidly. Yep. Right. Absolutely. Yep. And, and he said, I don't know if race has something to do with this, but the police acted stupidly. So he had to get the racial aspect in there. Yeah, it was kind of like a subliminal message at the time. I, I remember. It, it, you know, it's interesting. I don't know if, you, if you've done a study, but 
it would be interesting to see how police incidents were analyzed prior to that compared to post-2009. Because we, we on this podcast, we talk about 2018. 2018 has been the marker for us. But it's interesting to actually I, I, maybe maybe we could join up with you and do a study about prior to 2009 and after that. Because that, that, that did spearhead I think this identity politics of of what you were talking about because here he was the perpetrator at the time, but he was a black perpetrator. Right. That was part of his identity. His identity also was, I think you, I think you said, said it, or maybe John said it earlier, his status. John, I think you said, right, his status, his status was, he was a professor. professor. Um, so I, I think it comes down to, to identity, identity politics. And at that point, like you said, it's the pivotal moment. It, it yeah. really changed the game. And then what I watched, <laughs> I remember saying, you know, it was comical and, you know, I think people, some people liked Obama. He had like this swagger. But I remember when it made the papers. And then do you remember? And we actually had an opportunity to watch on the news where Obama decided to sit down with the both of them, have a beer together. But then it, it started to become devices of racist about what kind of beer they were drinking. I remember the white sergeant had chosen to drink Sam Adams and the black professor chose to drink Red Stripe. And it became about the background and how Sam Adams was, you know, was like a, 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 a was like a George Washington white figure, and, and the red stripe was a representative of black people, and and it's, that's not even African American. That's that's from that's a Jamaican beer, and right, it was just it was just crazy, and, and, and it started to perpetuate this emboldenment of yeah. of what you said of non-compliance. So, is yeah. there any? I, I, why do you think that it's come to this point where? No one wants to have respect for authority, especially police. What, what is what is what is your what do you think the ultimate goal is? Because John and I talk about this. I mean, I think it's about this whole new world order and deep. But what do you think the ultimate goal is? Well, it's what they're doing. They're trying to destroy the culture, which is how you destroy the country. It's like when I go to school board meetings and people see my my history, my resume about being a soldier, and that thank you know thank you. I'm like, thank you, I appreciate that, but my service in the war on terror, that's over. Right now, you may not realize it, there's a new war. It's a war in our country against our culture and our children, and the battlefield is the classroom. And every one of you are involved now. So thank you, because you're gonna be serving. They're trying to destroy us from within. Because, and the Russians saw this, like. When they attack us with on the internet with the elections, the 2016 elections, trying to disrupt things, they did like 3,000 something ads on Facebook. They found over half of those were racially related, and most of those were were mentioning law enforcement at the same time. The weak underbelly of America has always been the history of racism, because of the slave, history of slavery. You know, they did this whole 1690 project trying to make it believe like the country was developed way before it even was. We know what the sins are. We fought a civil war for it. 300,000 white Americans died fighting that. And if you want to say that the South fought the war to keep slavery, okay, then the North fought the war to get rid of slavery. And there were still horrible things, we know, with Jim Crow laws. But thankfully, eventually, our Constitution, our Bill of Rights, the laws became what the country was supposed to be and what was envisioned years before. And now, you don't have two, 2 million people making dangerous treks across the freaking world to illegally enter our borders because they think they're going to be discriminated against 
because they're brown, black, or something else. Because most of them are minorities coming here. They're coming here because this is the most freest, greatest country in the world. So the powers know you can't attack us militarily. The way to destroy us is from within, and that's what they're doing. That's what this whole division is. It's Marxism by, by uh, race instead of class. So, Mike, so that so we, I think I, I think mostly every cop I, I, I talk to says that's the moment right there. Police hate goes mainstream. That's the right. moment right there. Exactly. Now we're in. It's it's been fast forwarded. The, yeah. the anti-police pro criminal victim last, you know, legislation. Even the policy that's come down from by our big city police departments, the messaging that's coming out, the way the tactics are being trained, the training, the all of this stuff is coming in and it doesn't make sense. And I think it relates a lot, and and you highlight it very well in this in this January 4th shooting. Could you walk us through that and then the comments that were made by the elected there? You know, just 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 briefly, it doesn't have to be, you know. About the incident itself? Uh, yeah, just briefly about the incident, what happened, and then the comments that were made. And, okay. and if you could go a little bit on also how Cambridge is as a whole, as far as, you know, the, the numbers don't have to be accurate, but I think you did a study of over the last decade, if I'm not sure. It was over the last... 20 years, actually, because... Over the last 20 years, yeah. Right, yeah. It stood out to me. Uh, I'll get to that. So in Cambridge... They had a 911 call of an emotionally disturbed young man who broke through a window, jumped through a window, was shirtless. This is in a New England winter, so it's obviously cold. Here he is shirtless, bleeding, cutting himself with the shards of glass from the window, and a kukri, which is about an 18-inch machete known as the um, Nepalese military's weapon. That's what it's commonly used for. Running around the streets like that. So the police respond. They see the man. For five blocks, they follow him, talking to him, trying to get him to comply, to drop the weapon, to calm down. But he's not having it. And at some point, he turns on the cops. So first, they shoot a sponge bag at him, which is non-lethal or should be non-lethal, doesn't deter him. So next, he's advancing towards the officers with the machete. An officer used deadly force, justifiably, and he ends up killing him. So... Now here comes the radical democratic socialist of America. Uh, I think New York's their state representative and then two of their council people. One is demanding defunding, abolishing of the police. The other one saying how it demands accountability. You have to get uh, change. Um, so I'm, I'm looking at it though. In some of the reporting, it says how this is the first officer involved fatality in t- over 20 years. So I do a little digging into the numbers and they have like 228 members on the department. So serving for 200, for uh, 20 years, uh, 288 strong department. Using their 2021 crime report, I extrapolate how many calls they answered in the one year. It comes out to 2.25 million calls were handled over the past 20 years. And they, and they also handled about 50,000 crimes. And who knows how many millions more traffic stops and just daily interactions with the public. And in all that, and this officer who they want fired, eight years on the job, not a single complaint. So all that, one fatal shooting of an obvious emotionally disturbed person with a machete 
advancing and they want to drastically change or abolish the police and fire this cop. That is freaking ridiculous. And everybody needs to stand up against that. So I just got outraged when I saw that. I, I put together this piece and I, I send it over to my buddy who's still on in Cambridge. I was like, you know, hope this helps you guys out. And uh, I also sent it on Twitter to each one of those elected representatives that made those comments. I haven't heard back from them either. I wonder why. Yeah. <laughs> I wonder why. Mike, we, we've been talking about the buzzword that, you know, de-escalation, right? <laughs> We're always told, oh, de-escalate, de-escalate. The cops should have de-escalated better, you know. And, you know, you just said he, they, they followed this guy with a machete for five blocks, Right. right. Extended period of time. He's getting more enraged as the time goes on. Um, I always say, and and, and Eric agrees with me, we, we say it a lot. The de-escalation there is to take swift action to either get him down, get disarm him, whatever, whatever it may be, is right. to engage him and not allow him to move freely. Um what do you what do you think about the about de escalation? Like, what does that mean to you, de escalation? Like, when you hear, I hate that word. I hate it. I really. Don't. Well, what it means to when we're always hearing it, or what it actually means. I mean, I think it's a, it's a buzzword, like you say, that's just always being thrown around to try to say that we did something wrong or we didn't do something that we should have. But let's face it: had the that guy stabbed somebody within those five, first five blocks, we'd be blamed for their murder. So no matter what you do, you're going to be cast as you didn't do enough. You didn't do something right. De-escalation is trying to bring about a peaceful resolution as quickly as possible using the least amount of force possible. You know, we don't want to use deadly force. Nobody goes out to the, on their shift saying, I'm going to shoot somebody today. I'm going to kill somebody. No. Every single one of those incidents is precipitated by somebody who's committing a crime was emotionally disturbed and should have been somewhere on their meds or in a mental institution, which they deemed decades ago was uh, uncivilized to do that. So now they just let them out on the streets, especially in New York City, San Francisco, and Hawaii. So uh, that's what happens when you let crazy people and criminals interact with the public. They are predators. They will prey. I, I agree. You know, it, it comes down. John and I have been talking about this, and it comes down to that the actions of an adversary elicit a response. Yeah. And that's why my, my argument has been that, you know, I, I was the special operations lieutenant leading an aggressive, proactive policing teams to get illegal firearms and stop shootings in the streets of the South Bronx. Awesome. It's the poorest congressional district in the country. And, and we talked about this yesterday, uh, John and I, and, and, and I said, you know what? It's interesting because if every one of the encounters I had if the violent perpetrator was compliant, I would never have a complaint. Exactly. But their actions elicited a response. And right. I was a firm believer that sometimes we move slow and sometimes we move fast. And the public has this perception that time is always on your side. And I, I, I really don't believe that. My experience, and for them, it's, you know, it's, it's anecdotal. But I can tell you from my experience that when you give, Sometimes the adversary too much time. You're giving them, to, and they're, and, and what people don't understand is they're not stupid. Mm -hmm. Many of these violent perpetrators are extremely intelligent. Is they're they're thinking and they're having more time on the side to make decisions. When right. we're pursuing someone for five blocks, I mean, how long do they want us to pursue them? Thirty blocks, fifty right. blocks. Right. So that's why John and I agree that in, mo in many cases, 
de-escalation is acting swift and getting this guy in cuffs. I don't think time is always on the side, but I don't think really the public understands what de-escalation is. It could be moving quick. It could be moving slow. And not it's not one size fits all. That's why I like to go into when it comes to the, you talked about the media and the media has really perpetuated this, but how did the politicians get into this? Like for instance, the cases that we just had in LA, three yeah. critical incidents in a week where I thought the police officers at super professional, right. unbelievable. I thought they, they did fantastic. And yet the, the mayor that they work for, just completely threw them under the bus, buried them in a statement. So it's it's the media, it's the politicians. How do we get to the point that now the politicians eat the same people that work for them, that are out there protecting their city? I mean, it's it's to me, it's the craziest thing. Like they say, hey, we're here, we want to keep you uh, safe, and we have all these programs. Yeah. And we have our police out here, we'll put them out there in uniform, but the second they take action, those are the same guys they buried. Uh, it's a combination of a couple of things. First, I'll say the left, especially the radical left, they are out there. They come out in numbers. Whether they have a right to be outraged or not, they definitely act like they are. And they show up. They show up to the school board meetings, to the library meetings, legislative meetings, you guys, city hall. They get in front of the politicians' houses. They make a lot of noise. Whereas people that consider themselves patriots and just want to, you know, want everybody to get along, serve, love the country, just do the right thing. Well, they're busy just working, being with their family, with thinking that, all right, you know, it's not that bad. This will pass, and I don't have to go out there. But, but you know what? They do because we're our people aren't showing up, and that even means our own members sometimes because. I've seen it where anti-police stuff is going to be at a legislative session and you ask for the cops to show up and they don't because it's just not our side isn't drawn to the protest, to, to the activism, whereas that's the full-time job of the left. That's what they do. And secondly, it's the quality, or I should say lack of quality, of people that, pol that pol politics attracts. Look at George Sanders. <laughs> Perfect example. I think we all know about him in the news, just elected to Congress. Got in there based on a complete lie, his whole resume. And you know what? Party never vetted him because they were just blinded by the fact that he was self-funding his campaign and had money when they had a much better candidate. But And, th and that just shows you if, you, if you're a great liar, you're going to succeed as a politician. It's not about having the right principles because they don't. These people, and, and you're also seeing this with senior, le senior leadership in departments and the military, as we saw with not a single general retiring or, or, uh, or you know, or being fired in response to the Afghan withdrawal. I mean, there were generals that should have put it all on the line the way that Lieutenant Colonel said, you know, you knew this was going to happen. I was at that base. Clearly, you don't give up Bagram for, for Kabul. But... At, at that highest level, these people are no longer, it's like they forgot that oath that they first served to support and defend the Constitution of the United States. At that point, they're thinking about, you know, that, that next star or that gig I'm going to get with CNBC or this or that, when it, it was a very easy choice for them to just do the right thing, but they're not doing it. Wow. Mike, it's uh, crazy that uh, you're on here tonight talking about this because me and Eric literally were having this conversation yesterday how there's a huge huge disconnect 
in the executive ranks. They're playing these political games and they believe them to be real while they're using us as pawns and they're letting politicians, like you said, use us, the men and women on the ground, the boots on the ground, use us as complete pawns. And Eric, just to just to like add on to what Mike's saying too, the politicians, they want, they want to be heard. They want to be in the media. So obviously these stories are getting in the media. They're jumping on the bandwagon because that's right. all they do. Right. You know what I mean? Even and and, I, and I'm not and and you and you guys both know me. I I I'm talking all of them, left, okay. right. You know they are not genuine people. George Santos is a microcosm of all of them. They're exactly. all going nuts about George Santos. I'm like, he is you. He is yeah. you. He is you. Like that is that is a true representative of what a politician today is. I'm like, you know, we historically did, did have police had issues with corruption. Yes, it's been figured out. Our cities had mafia presence, corruption at the highest levels, weeded out. We never went into the politics. What, what The politicians are the most corrupt people going on the face of, of today. And they're using us and death as pawns to divide the people. Like Mike's saying, we're really, they're using race to divide us. And they're using lies perpetrated in in against the police using racism to to really to just put us into a thing and shake us up and then they're going to have all the solutions but they caused all the problems right exactly yeah you know i'm curious i i could if i was a betting man i could bet exactly what you're going to say but i'm just curious john and i talk about this all the time so i'm curious about your perspective because this is the only case I can think right now where the police are the heroes lately. But John and I always compare how the NYPD was treated during the during the riots, during the George Floyd riots, mm-hmm. and how they were treated for taking any action. Even one cop who just pointed his firearm, uh, I think he was suspended. And, and, and in, in, in the close proximity, a lieutenant got hit in the head with a brick, and he just started pointing his firearm. But then we talk about the Capitol Police. And these guys are, have been hailed as heroes. They shot someone who was unarmed, and they were called names. I mean, my name every day in the NYPD was suck my dick. They were called a couple of names, and boo-hoo. But yet, they've been looked at as heroes. So this is the only time I can see where cops lately were looked at as heroes. I, I would bet what you're going to say, but I'm curious if what your perspective actually – I would put my money where it's going to be, but I'm curious what, what you're going to say. I, I might surprise you on this one. I'm actually working on a piece about this right now. Um, and I actually did, I did talk to a DC police officer who was there at the, at the riot. And uh, he was pretty badly injured, was in a hospital for a few days. He was telling me the story, but as for the shooting of Ashley Babbitt, because I find this is a fascinating one, which we should use to shut the left up anytime they try to bring up what they see as an unjustified use of deadly force. Here you have an unarmed woman that is trying to breach a barricaded and broken glass door to get into what should be the, the, the last final part of the Capitol, the, the chambers, where that officer is, in his mind, defending. He's the last stand defending against that mob who is violent and damaging property and has injured cops against those 60 to 80 House Representative members. Now, because Biden makes these stupid comments about police being retrained to shoot, not to kill. 
<laughs> we'll just talk about that. <laughs> that's absolutely it's a joke when you talk about how hard it is to hit an object with a gun that it's moving so that's why you go for center mass you know you get into the whole fundamentals of your breath control sight alignment trigger all that very difficult to do so it makes the most sense you're going for the largest tar target possible to stop this you're trying to stop the threat not kill besides the point but if there was ever in a case where you could possibly shoot somebody who deserves deadly force because she is the tip. She gets through, the rest of the mob gets through. You don't know what that violent mob is going to do. That's a secure area. So with my police and military background, I'm defending that that would, would justify deadly force in my eyes as well. But as she's climbing through, if there was ever a point that you could have shot to not kill and just injure, you could have hit the shoulder, at which point maybe that would have been enough to stop everybody else and make them gain their senses. And possibly the officer even did that, but because of, as I'm saying, when you're trying to shoot at a moving object with a handgun under stress, maybe he did aim for the shoulder, but it hit the neck. But my point is the left totally silent on this. You don't have them come out, out any statements, any outrage or any, any, anything. So their silence is actually support of what he did because it, then they had statements in the paper where it said the department of justice and the Washington police investigation deemed it was justified. So, okay, that's justified. What's your problem with this shooting versus that one? Please tell me. And that's what I would say to the next outraged politician that's trying to make an issue of something that isn't an issue. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, you know, compare it. Like what, what Eric was talking about is during the riots, there was, there was a cop. He's in the middle of it. I think it was like 52nd and 5th Avenue. He's in the middle of 52nd and 5th Avenue. And you just see what looks like a movie scene. Windows being smashed. Thousands of people up, down, stolen cars all over the place. The radio's jumping. The, the whole city's on fire. And all we get is a 10-second clip of him pulling out his gun and scanning. And telling everybody, get back, get back, get back. And... For two days in the news cycle, this cop just pulled his gun out. They're not talking about the craziness. Right. At the time, we at the time, and they changed this on us, but at that time, we could pull our gun out when we feared for our lives. If we feared for our life, I'm able to pull my gun out. If I could reasonably say that I fear for my life or the life of another, I could pull my gun out to defend myself. They I I, I believe you're right, Eric. I, I don't think they suspended him, but they pulled him off the street for two days while it broke through the news cycle. A three on the third day they put the they put the whole video out and the whole video is him they're standing in the middle of the street like four cops and it's just chaos everywhere thousands of people looting stores doing all, all right. this stuff. and what what happens is someone runs up with a brick and smashes this kid's lieutenant in the head with a brick and his reaction is he takes the gun because he thinks they're being attacked get back get back get back get back and that was no good and i keep saying if Ashley Babbitt was, I keep saying, if Ashley Babbitt is what was justified, right? How then he was justified to shoot that guy. He was a hundred percent justified to turn around and shoot that guy with a brick. He didn't even shoot anybody, and they wanted to fire. No, not just him. Think about it. I think over the course of the George Floyd summer riots, there were two thousand cops injured, forty six or forty seven people killed. So every time during those riots, an officer felt that his life was in danger or civilians was in danger 
they were justified to use deadly force against those rioters. Those are not protesters. Those are violent, deadly rioters. But they were treated completely different. Even like the ones who they ransacked and burned down a police precinct. Anybody that was trying to do that, justified deadly force. Wasn't used, though, because that would have been outrageous and racist. It's a double standard. Again, that's why, that, that's why well, race played definitely played a role. And that's right. why, arguably, if Ashley Babbitt if Ashley Babbitt wasn't white, do you think do you think he would play out differently? That would have been a tough one because they wanted this is how this is to their political advantage of the MAGA insurrection to use that incident. That would have made it tougher. It's kind of 50-50. Which one do they choose? The politics or the identity politics in this one, you know? Yeah, I, I think they I think they were so anti-Trump that at that point you're right. I think it, it might have made some difference, but I think they, they would have overlooked it yeah. for that reason. And, and and that's the only case I can think of since I would say the early 2000s that the police have been hailed the hero. Right. And I think arguably, I'm, you know, I'm not saying that these guys didn't have the right to take action, but it's comparable to what's going on in the riots. And and is it is, is the lives of the politicians, you know, more valuable than the lives of, of business owners and, and, and the citizens, just average city citizens? I mean, yeah. that's who the politicians protect. Right. They're supposed to support the people. So, right. And that's why I'm saying every one of those incidents in the, the Floyd riots and the Capitol riot, deadly force is justified. I don't want anybody to get shot, but if people are going to act like violent animals and endanger other people's lives, they have to understand <laughs> that's a consequence. And the more people yeah. understand that, the less they're going to act that way and the less people will actually be shot. But the Compliance, right? You said it. Right? You said it, compliance. I mean, but yeah. how do we... And, and I think you're right. It starts in a classroom. We got to teach these kids compliance. But I, th I think, John, I think you said it. You you interviewed, I forgot the guy's name, and I, and I listened to it. It was really intelligent, where he said that we wouldn't parent our kids this way. So that's where it starts. Or, John, what was his name? That was really intelligent. Oh, said. he ran for Congress. He was actually a Democrat. He, he, he switched now. He's uh, yes. Ryan Robinson. He was running for Congress. Uh, he was running in, he was running in, Park Slope against in Congressional District 10, I believe, against when de Blasio decided he was going to be a congressman now. And he, that's what he said. He, he, you know, and he was a moderate Democrat. So obviously he never got into the, the Democratic debate and he got no funding. But right. he, what he said is we wouldn't parent our kids this way. You know, there yeah. has to be consequences for action, you know, and right. we're not seeing that today with the DAs, too. And, you know, we, we like I said, I keep saying we're growing criminals in New York City. By our district attorneys not not prosecuting, you know, and they are elected. And, and I know you're a big promote, proponent of of voting and getting out there and voting, Mike. Um, yes. What What are your opinions on on the DAs in New York City currently? Like what what's going on as far as, the, you know, the, the lack of prosecution, not only for minor crime, but yes. we're seeing in, in the majority of our major crime as well. <clears throat> Whether it's just a revolving door, and and that's prior to even bail reform. I'm talking about declined prosecution prior to bail reform. Um, well, that was one of the many reasons I was hoping Lee Zeldin was going to win was firing Alvin Bragg on the first day. And Alvin Bragg is just the epitome of the Soros-backed DAs that we see across the country. Austin, this is in Texas, but a radical Soros DA is turning that little city into a, you know, democratic third world shithole when it comes to crime. So you have these DAs 
Well, instead of district attorneys, they're actually defense attorneys. And some of them, I think like Chesa Budin in San Francisco had said how his intentions were to get in and to not prosecute crimes. And, you know, he favors the criminal. If people are going to vote stupidly, they're going to get stupid, stupid representation from politicians. That's what it comes down to. Absolutely. So, like we said, I know we spoke about it earlier, but so what's the ultimate goal of the of the DA to get on board and to counter the criminal, to counter the criminals. What's, what's the ultimate goal? It, it's, it's just an extension of woke movement. Is it? Is yeah. It, they're funded. Yeah. They're funded by woke. He, they're, they're, they're funded by this leftist movement. They're, they're, they're put in there to, to do that. I mean, right. that's, that's what's going on. They're telling they're, you they do it. Right. They're activists that have been elected to a position that is supposed to enforce the law. Shame on the people who elected them in that position. Unfortunately, everybody else pays the penalty for those idiots that voted that way. And that's why you see the mass migration out of California and New York, places where the rule of law is supported in places like Florida um, and Texas, aside from Austin. <laughs> yeah, I, Texas is really changing. I mean, I always said that, you know, if you want to go to America, go to Texas and Florida. But honestly, at this point, I think Florida is, is, is you know, it's the last, it's the last state standing. On, as a whole, yeah, you know there are some, there are some parts that that are, that are are blue, but as a whole, it's it's the only place that's going to support police at this point. Right. I mean, if I if I was a young kid, and I it really if that was my dream to be a cop, that's the only place I would consider now. Okay. Uh, what would you tell a young man right now, honestly? What would you tell a young man or a young woman who's peaking it uh, right now? It's peaking their interest to get involved in law enforcement. Uh, what 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 would what would your message be there? Uh, sad to say, I would tell them not to do it. It's uh, at this point, the people don't deserve those that want to serve and protect because they're getting thrown under the bus for trying to do what it is the job is supposed to supposed to be done. So at this point, I would I would recommend against it. I mean, I would try to steer towards the military, but but right now we have a commander in chief who doesn't even respect those who served and died for him can't even keep uh, control of classified documents. So he has no regard for secret material. He's just, a, you know, he's Santos uh, magnified. So I, I would say learn a trade and wait for the ties to change and then, you know, be prepared to uh, then maybe enter your calling profession. Well, so, you know, it's near, it's, it's near and dear to me. Uh, you know, Bitcoin is the most complaint cop. And that's because of the civilian complaint. I have the most civilian complaints in history, but they're, they're, it's a byproduct to do proactive police work. Right. And, uh, you know, John and I have went over the timeline. If you actually, if you actually look at the 58 up to 2018, I did get complaints. They're all from perpetrators. Um, I have, I think it's 115 allegations, but every one of them was from a violent perpetrator arrested shootings, robberies, and illegal firearms. Most of them were possession of illegal firearms. Right. Uh, and most of these guys are, when I go over the cases, they're still in custody. But up to 2018, it was it was normal. I had one complaint one year, and maybe two years I didn't have a complaint. Then I had another complaint. But once 2018, when the legislation started to kick in, I mean, the civilian complaint review board just really targeted me. So, how does civilian complaint you feel? How does the civilian complaint review board play a role with the politicians and the media with this defund the police? Well. 
that's the only, I think we're the only profession where we have civilians that are sharpshooting the things that us as trained professionals are having to do, doing split-second decisions under duress of possible life and death. So first of all, it's uh, it's just ridiculous and shouldn't happen in the first place. Secondly, you think of who's on those civilian complaint review boards. Anti-police activists. It's, it's not your average ordinary citizen that is maybe down the middle or, you know, favors the police, wants, wants law and order. These are people that are against the police jumping on there so they can take their activism and enforce it on you. So what do you think the numbers are going to be? I think I've seen things come out from this, the city PBA that show like 90-something percent of CRB complaints are unfounded because, like you said, it's perps. And that's the other thing. When the left, the politicians want to talk about people that are being um, targeted or harassed or hurt by the police, if there was such an epidemic of that, how come they can't find normal people that have been targeted, harassed, and had force used on them? They have to go to career criminals and gang members because we're not doing it based upon a person's ethnicity. We're doing it based upon their actions. And the actions are actions of criminality, and those are the people. I, I agree. I couldn't agree more. I mean, John, John highlights it all the time. He talks about his two arrests as a youth. He was a white Italian kid in New York City, yeah. and, and he got addressed the same way a young black kid did. You know, he and I, and I'm sure you did, get the same speech when you were kids. Don't be a jerk. Don't disrespect, right? Don't disrespect your teacher. Don't respect police officers. Don't respect the neighbor when the neighbor has their head out the window and they're telling you, shut up, you know, when the kids are hanging out, shut your asses up because we need to go to sleep. That's right. what he did. Yeah. Didn't matter if you were black, white. No. You know, you there was respect for authority. And I think it was because we had community. We lost that community. And I, and I, I saw it. I'm, I'm assuming you saw it, too, in the police department where we'd arrest someone with a legal firearm. And the mother's coming in saying, what did you do to my son? I said, you can't, the kid has a gun on him. Yeah. Oh, you know, well, because it's dangerous out here. But that's, that's, that, that was the justification. So there's no sense of community anymore. There was no sense of, of, of embarrassment that, hey, my kid got arrested. Well, unfortunately, with social media, there's no embarrassment for anything these days because people put their whole lives on. The more crazy things they can do or show, the more hits and likes they get. So there is no more embarrassment. And whereas when we were growing up, if you got stopped or brought into a police station, you were more scared shit of the fact your father was going to kick your ass when he found out. Yeah. When, unfortunately, a lot of these kids don't even have fathers that know about it because the fathers aren't around, which is a big problem that's that's increasing in our culture. And just like with crime being intraracial, that doesn't know racial boundaries. Children of any race who do not have a father are more likely to be in poverty and be in a life of crime. So those are things that need to be addressed. Absolutely. Mike, I'm, I don't want to keep you all night, but uh, but... Do you mind touching on because you, you made great points on uh you, you, the other article that you wrote on January sixth in the in, in the post that uh that came in the post and it was titled twenty twenty two was deadly for cops yet yes. many of their murders were entirely preventable um, yeah you know I I we don't need specifics or anything if you don't have them in front of you but could you just touch on what what led you to do that and just the overall riding theme on like how how you came to that fact because you also mentioned that it could have been preventable for a lot of civilians in there too um right right so if you could yeah. just what i throughout the year as officers 
officers are getting killed, I'm putting on my website the one, a one-pager detailing everything that happened, the nexus to criminality, the nexus to drugs, the nexus to mental illness, and then um, you know how the call started. And what I found in 2022, as is common most of the years prior, I think there were 61 officers felonously murdered in the line of duty, which I'll throw one caveat in there. It was actually 60 during 2022, but as happens every year, as this year, we will have cops that are shot, beat, or, or attacked that are severely injured. Down the line, they're going to die. Well, back in was it 24, 2016, when Gavin Long attacked the Baton Rouge cops, one of the officers that he had shot back then gave him brain damage and paralysis. He ended up dying this year, so he was number 61. But 90% of those incidents where cops were murdered, they were by people with a criminal record or wanted for uh, you know felony warrants. So it's that nexus to criminality. There was, let's see, 30, 39% or 24 of those that killed the cops had a mental illness, and 12 were suicidal, so some kind of suicidal tendency. So you see the outrage when, like in Cambridge, you have this person who was either mentally ill or he was on something. And when you talk about personal responsibility, because they're trying to say that you know the, the cop has some kind of responsibility, the the mayor and think in Los Angeles, you know somebody placed the blame on. Well, how about where's the blame on the family that was supposed to be taking care of this person? No, they're always quick to sue the county, the city for money after their son, nephew, whoever was killed. But who gets money from them when their son kills somebody else or puts? The, the police through the trauma of having to use deadly force. There's no cop wants to do that. But you see how some of them are suicidal and people are like, how can you kill that guy? He was just trying to harm themselves until he tried to harm the cops. Well, 12 of those cops were killed by people who were suicidal because suicidal people are inherently dangerous. I couldn't agree with you more. John and I just spoke about this, actually. I, I, I almost feel like we must have had a conversation about this without talking, but we, we just spoke about this, and I said that when the when you go to work, it, it's like playing roulette because you don't know when your time is up, when you hit red. You get that call. When the police respond, this is the last line. I mean, we, this is this is the last line of defense. And, mm -hmm. and, and, and everyone's saying, why did the police officers do A, B, C, D, A through Z, all these items of what they could have done? But I'm saying that, hey, it's like foosball. You're playing foosball. And someone scores and you put the ring to the other side so you know how many points they have. Well, where was the family? Like you said, where was the family to interject when this person was on drugs? There's the first ring. Where mm -hmm. was the family to make sure this person was, was seeking out a therapist? Mm -hmm. Where was the family member to say, hey, don't get behind the wheel? Where was the family member to recognize the suicidal tendencies? But yet, when the police respond and all these things have been bypassed and overlooked, but yet the police officer is supposed to handle all these things that were supposed to be handled already. Right. In addition to what they have at that time, which is you and I know, and especially John, all of us, when you respond, you respond to a mystery. And the, 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 the analysis that I would say is it's like you, when you go fishing and you throw out a fishing line, you throw it out that line. But when you throw it down into the water, you don't actually see what's coming up. So it's right. a mystery. You think yeah. you got a fish, but you get a metal can. Yeah. And, and that's what happens. Cops go there. They don't know what they have. Right. You might think you have someone who's mentally uh, incapacitated. But like John said, hey, the guy's running into traffic. We don't know. He could be going. He, he could have just killed six people. 
Right. And yet they want the police officer to solve all these issues that have been overlooked in 10 seconds. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's just not fair. Yeah, absolutely. They want they want they want cops to make a determination in a split second. Oh, he's mentally ill. Or was he excited delirium? Is he trying to trick me and run away? Mm-hmm. Does right. he have drugs in the car? I mean, because I've interacted with some perps that are very good. Yeah. They they should have won Oscars. You know what I mean? And they'll, you know, I don't believe anyone, so it's a good yeah. strong point of mine. So but but that's you know, that's the thing. They want us to be perfect. And and I really do believe that in every incident, we should be looking at the action plan, at where our failures were. We should identify those. But we but right now what we're seeing is the only analysis we do is the failure on the part of the police officer and the police officer is the only one held accountable for anything the the perpetrator the mentally ill person is not held accountable for their own actions in any way shape or form and then we're going to the cops and we're saying and we're doing it to ourselves with the leadership they're looking at the cops and they're like i'm looking i gotta see what he did wrong here I don't find anything wrong. And I'm like, well, I mean, I, I get we're looking. I get that we should be looking at failures and always be looking to improve. But why do, why can't we just give a reasonable message to the public? Like, yeah, hey, listen, we messed up here. But let's not forget, this guy had a knife and charged the cops. Right. You know, yeah. you know, I, we will look at this in the future. You know, but like, you know, it's 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 a sad it's a sad state of affairs. It is. I hate to be so negative, so I, I always like to just start to bring it a little bit more positive. Like, did you say that? <laughs> <laughs> what do you, what do you what do you think? Like, you know, people a lot of a lot of civilians listen to this show, Mike. Like, we, you know, so what what do you think is the way forward? I I know you're big on voting, but what could we do as individuals? Well, um, education. You, we have to educate the general public on the reality of what we do, especially when it comes to deadly force, because deadly force, force, that's what gets the outrage. That's what gets the talking points. So we have to be able to let to educate people to put that in context. And that's part of what got me started writing as well. When I saw something in my school where they were teaching or, or giving links to anti-police material, I looked it up, I researched the facts, and I tried to educate that whole anti-bias uh, task force on it, and they didn't they didn't go go for it. So then I went to the next level and spoke to the school boards, trying to educate them, teach them the facts. So I'll throw out some numbers for you, and this is what I, I like to use to educate people. But before I do, I heard you guys talking about your concern over the bill that the one legislator was trying to get in New York City, where you get fired if you use any force. I talked to one of our lobby lobbyist guys. That bill has been around since 2019, and it's never made it out of the governance, uh, safe, the governance employees committee. So I don't even know if it made it into that, that committee this year, but it's never made it out of that committee in the past. Just to maybe alleviate, look, I think it's, it's outrageous, and the PBA <laughs> should be on top of it. I could tell you mine is, and that's why I'm letting you know about it. I, Secondly, well, I hope you're right, but I'll just tell you, I've... Every state legislator in New York does that. And I keep, I always say, how many times do you go to the Super Bowl before you win? Because what they do is they keep these bills around and eventually they come through. And now 2023, 
you know, they, they, this bill, you know, the same way, like if Obama came out in, in 2008 and said defund the police, there would have been an uproar. But right. there was there was, you know, we were slowly built to now it's this complete anti-police to like, oh, a president's commenting on the actions of a little police department. He's saying the police acted stupidly when he didn't right. even know what they did to all of a sudden this is commonplace. So politicians are just ripping us to shreds. Doesn't even right. make they're looking at a video, telling lies about the video, and and now it's the same thing with legislation. You know, they it, it's been it's been pushed in, and then eventually it keeps getting kicked around until until it passes, and that's what and that's my fear, honestly. And now I see, you know, it's a super majority. It's a super majority. I mean, so I, I people need to be vocal. That that's my point. Like people right. need to be vocal, or that's gonna or that's gonna pass. Eventually, yes, yes. I'm just telling you right now what the status is. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely, yeah, yeah. That it hasn't. Uh, I know you guys are talking about the Seattle, cho- the Seattle chop. Um, <laughs> no, you're talking about you're talking, uh, the Rayshard Brooks shooting, which I actually met um, one of the officers involved and, and the father. After one of my articles, he reached out to me. Awesome gentleman uh, and, and the officer. They're doing a fundraiser trying because he's suing, rightfully so, Atlanta for what they did to him. There was a chop zone in Atlanta at that time, and yes. his old black girl, Sequoia Turner, got killed by the people patrolling that little area, right, trying to replace the police. What do they do? Kill an eight-year-old girl. Um, but here, I'll give you some numbers that kind of puts this in perspective. In a typical year, the National Emergency Number Association 911 number, they said, I think it was 2019, that there are 240 million 911 calls. Stanford University did a study that in a given year, I think that 2019, there was 20 million traffic stops by the police. And then the FBI uniform crime report numbers, about 10 million arrests in a given year. I think 500,000 of those being violent crimes. So that's about 270 something million police interactions that are that we know about, besides the running into people in the 7-Eleven, getting coffee, et cetera. In a given year, there's 1,000 fatal police shootings. Of those 1,000, 90 to 95% of the people killed are armed. Knife, a gun, bat, et cetera. So barring some extenuating circumstance, right off the bat, you know that's justified. So you take that 5 to 10% that are unarmed, usually about 50 people a year. Most of those people are trying to run the officer over. They're in the presence of an armed accomplice or they're physically assaulting the officer with their hands. And three officers were killed in the last few years by unarmed people. One who got beat to death and the other two stole the officer's weapon after beating him and killed him. Or they're suicide by cop. They're making believe they have a weapon. So if you take that, whittle that down, over 270 million interactions in a year, there's about five, five or less people that are unjustifiably killed by the police. So five out of 270-something million, 300 people a year are struck by lightning. You have a better chance of getting struck by lightning than if you're a law-abiding citizen of being killed by the police. Or, if you want to put it in Biden's terms, there will be more classified top-secret documents found in his garage, house, and uh, think tank at Penn State than there will be a number of unjustified shootings this year. You know, John said, John said he didn't want to keep you all night, but 
I want to keep this going. I love this subject. I love numbers. I love, <laughs> I love facts. I love statistics. So it's been my argument. This is my argument. And so I'm curious to hear if you've done any studies or what you think about it. So in light of the initiation of body cameras, it's been my argument that body cameras are great for major incidents. And the analysis I use is, the guy that you and I were working together, we had a female prisoner. And we were transporting her. The body camera had a view of her. And she made an allegation that we raped her. Right. Clearly, it would exonerate us. It's a major right. incident. But it's my argument that when it comes to minor incidents, and in most incidents, that the body camera is actually hurting us. Because the p- perception of a tussle, uh, most people don't understand what they're looking at. A police officer can dissect it and explain what it is. And I also think my argument, and I've been telling John, is that What's unfair about the body camera is we can look at it in a comfortable environment and, and control the environment, and we can slow it down. We can look at it frame by frame, and that's right. – I don't believe that we should analyze a police incident by that that perception, that view. I think no. that it has to be viewed as the entire in, in its entirety because right. in real time, you don't view it as the same way in a body camera. It, I was actually questioned. One of my civilian complaints, I'll never forget. So one of the adversaries, we, he was fighting. He was fighting two cops. One of my cops was underneath him. He was wanted for a shooting. He already had a rap sheet of assaulting cops. He assaulted a lieutenant in the past where he, he rendered him unconscious. So I remember what, initially he took a full swing in my face. He said he's not going. Hmm. He got, the fight was on, and I deployed punch after punch to get him in the cuffs and to get him to stop biting one of my cops and get one of my cops out underneath. Right, And in my interview, they stopped the body camera. And at some point, I was deploying a punch. And one of the officers that worked for me had grabbed his wrist. I never saw that. But they were able to stop that. And they didn't understand how my view was I was still fighting a guy with two hands. I did not see him get grabbed. Right. You could see that from the body camera. So what, what is your view and what is your perception of body camera footage? Well, I think what you just pointed out is our the video from our cameras could be used in the same way that these other videos, they're taking still shots, and that makes a front-page headline. Just that still shot. You can't take a still shot of somebody else's video any more than you could take it of ours. So it's got to be the totality of the video and the circumstances. And as I think it was the Las Vegas PD uh, pr- Protective League, their union, they're, they've had the cameras, I think, for some time now. And I was at a conference where they were talking about one of the things they found was they have they had to educate like their civilian review board equivalent. The fact that what you're seeing on the camera is from the officer in this angle forward, not what the officer saw that was to their right or to their left. Because, you know, they could turn the head or they have peripheral vision. So there's factors like that that, no, you don't see that in the video. And that's why you do have to take everything into account. Yeah, uh, uh, well said. Thanks. Oh yeah, they absolutely using body. They absolutely using body camera wrong because it's the way we look at everything. And and like I said, it it stems from our job. It stems from it's it stems from the leadership of the job, right. the way that they're they're analyzing situations because they're breaking it down frame by frame as well. Oh, right here wasn't that good. Well, all right. What do you mean right there wasn't that good? You know what I mean, and and that's and that's for the civilian investigators too, but uh, you know I 
you know, I, I body cameras aren't going anywhere. But and as we see, you know, we're becoming more transparent, right? But as this is happening, I'm noticing in the NYPD, they're becoming less transparent. We just had a, a man assaulted recently. They won't release the footage of the assault. Oh, it's too brutal for everybody to see. We had the incident in the one to one where they said, oh, it's terrible. So why not? Why aren't we being transparent and releasing the whole body camera instead right. of letting cell phone footage run around? You know, so I don't think body I like I, I think that body camera. Foot, I, well, we already know it's not going. It's not going anywhere. Body right. camera. So they're here to stay. So let's make them as transparent as possible. They there should they should be put out on every major incident. Like the one thing I'll say about the L.A. incident is they dropped those body cameras right away. They pushed right. back on that, that, not that, not, whatever, however many seconds it was. It was like a 15 second video. They pushed back right away. At least they did that. At least the chief put it out there. All right. This is what it is. Now let all of the talking heads go like right. us go on there and, and debate it. You right. know, and, but what, I, what, what I'm worried about is that those body cameras are going to become less transparent because I'm, I'm, we're starting to see that now. We, we're going to wait. We're going to wait till it's out of the news cycle to release it. And then maybe it's not a news story anymore when it becomes un- when it becomes uncovered that the cop didn't do anything wrong or, or maybe he did. And, and we won't know anyway because it'll be out of the news cycle. And that's where we need people that are uh, whether on our side or just people that believe in the rule of law and, you know, our institutions need them to be active like Great, great examples. These women at school board meetings in my community, they are masters of FOIA request. They know how to get all the documents from the school, their emails, um, receipts, where, where the teachers are getting trained, all that. When we have incidents on our job where we know, hey, you know, they're, they're going to make this false allegation or try to say this is bad. But in actuality, I know the video shows the truth, shows it's good. Well, tell people. Tell the person in your, you know, that's active in your community, you might want to FOIA this incident, this time, this date. Get that out there. No, that's great advice. Absolutely. The, the other, the other problem I take issue with too. So I'm wondering if you did any studies on the leadership of police departments in these democratic cities. But what what we're seeing is is a divide from the rank and file to these executives, and particularly, it's my opinion that the speech that was was given out by Chief Moore from the LAPD, that in each case, he left it ambiguous and he left room for doubt in case right. there's an angry mob and he has to eat them within. And I think that's part of the war on cops, uh, okay. is is the war within, with this leadership that is bowing to the, the mob. And like you said, so they can get a star on their chest. So right. uh, what's your opinion on, on, on leadership in, the, in, in police departments now? <laughs> I, I see left already. <laughs> I would say on police departments and in the military in general, it's lacking. You have some phenomenal leaders. You have some police chiefs that the troops really respect and look up to and know have their back. And look, nobody hates a bad cop worse than the good cops. So if somebody's legitimately being brutal, breaking the law, abusing people, we don't want them in our ranks. So we're all for getting them out. But that's not what's happening. Right away, they're putting the blame, making it appear as we might have did something wrong. We'll get back to you until we know for sure. And we're going to double and triple check, even though the video looks good and, you know, the person was armed. You don't have people that are willing to get up there and put 
the community and their cops ahead of themselves, their own personal ambitions, which is amazing because at that point you're vested. You, you can retire, you've got the time on. You can go to, into the sunset, you know, pat yourself on the back, I did a good job, I stood by my word, I served and protected, but they're not doing that. And it's a failure. And unfortunately, you know, how do you correct that? How do you weed out the good leaders from the bad ones? Well, I agree. With you. I agree. With you. That's that's been that's been what I've been uh, conveying to the public, and, and I've been telling the cops that these leaders, and, and they 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 bow to the masses, and they also it's self-serving because in most cases, like the NYPD, I, I'm assuming Suffolk is probably the same way, but for most of these executives, it's a deity. And they have to pave the way for their sons and daughters that are coming on the job, which is why they don't speak out. And it's self-serving because, you know what, I'll go along with the program or what the politician wants because my son's going to get on the job. Like, for instance, we talked about the former commissioner, Jeremy Shea. His son came on the job in less than 18 months. He's now in a detective squad because he knows his son can't be on the street because he's going to face a civilian complaint review board and the perception of the politicians and the media now, he can't do police work. So Jeremy Shea... It w- is not going to be that leader to speak out about the atrocities because he has to pave right. the way for his son. And that's what we're seeing with these leaders. Are you seeing, did you see that? Are you seeing this amongst the departments throughout the country? Is there any, 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 anything you looked at with this? No, I haven't done any studies of that. I just know by their nature, since most police commissioners are appointed by the mayor, city council, whoever, they are politicians. They're politicians in a uniform, just as generals are at that point, at that grade, they're selected through a political process, okay? So they are politicians. Um, I will say one thing that I saw recently, we had two Suffolk cops that were stabbed handling a EDP call just the, the uh, end of last year. And by the grace of God, the Stony Brook University Hospital, they do phenomenal trauma care on our guys, save their lives. Well, at the press conference, our commissioner used to be NYPD, Rodney Harrison, he actually said, you know, based on my 30 years of service and what I've seen in this, they were justified to use deadly force. I mean, that's freaking phenomenal. Absolutely. That was within the first days to hear a police commissioner say, based on what I've seen, that's justified deadly force. That, that, that's great. And it's true. I mean, what more could you want? The two guys were both stabbed. But as we see, that really doesn't matter because we had a Stony Brook University teacher going on Stony Brook Medical website criticizing the cops, calling them murderers, and calling the police violence. And that's who's educating people getting their college degrees and going out there and being the future leaders, which is why we have a problem with leadership. Wow. Absolutely. Yeah, that's where it stems from, right? It stems from the narrative that we're being taught, the narrative that's being perpetrated and i agree with you the, the appointed really are you're right they're they're politicians and 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 you know like i i did what show did i go i, I went on roger stone's show and he asked me who was the best nypd police commissioner in the last 30 years or whatever and i said ray kelly i said just because you know i i would have i would have said bill bratton if he didn't come back the second time but when he came back on the de blasio i you know he didn't exhibit leadership and 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 then I and then I was talking about it and I was like you know what I was like it's not really fair for me to say Ray Kelly though either because he had a he had a layup he had a mayor that he had a mayor that that supported him that supported the police that wanted a proactive police department right but right. he you know so like he was he still was an extension 
of of that politics. So like yeah. of that politician. So politics comes into, I mean, with, and and the more I grew in the police department, I realized I'm like, wow, we're just a pawn of these politicians. Whichever way it is, oh, go out there and arrest these people. Go out there and get a million summons. Go out there and lock everybody up. We go out there and do it. New mayor comes in. Yeah, you know what? We weren't doing it right. You guys weren't doing it right. Same guy that was just pushing you to get to arrest. You guys weren't doing it right. You know what we got to do now? We got to work together. We got to give out ice cream. And it's like, you you made me do it. Like, you know, and... So politics always comes into play. Is, that, just, is there a better example of in the city department, they were making you guys start enforcing Lucy's. So you go do that on Eric Garner based on that bodega guy's phone call. And then they hung him out to dry. Yeah. And, and he followed training. He followed exactly what I was trained to do. Mm-hmm. He followed training. He didn't break law. He didn't put Eric Garner in a chokehold. And they hung him out to dry yep. to appease the mob. Yeah. To appease the mob. I have, I have, a, I have a, I have an obligation to the whole city. That was what that that was what the police commissioner said. I have an obligation to the whole city, meaning I can't have a riot, even though this kid did absolutely nothing wrong. So we're gonna just fire him. You know, they're not. They have an obligation to the truth. That's what they have an obligation to. Absolutely. They're failing. Absolutely. Well, they most of them, and I'll say most. There's a select few, but most of them, they're cowards. They're self-serving and. They they have no ability to show leadership. They don't have a spine. Because a true leader would stand up and say, listen, this isn't right. Stand up for the cops and have morals and principles. But like I said, for, for many of them, it's a deity. They have to pave the way for their sons and daughters, or they owe people favors. But in some case, there's something on the hook of why they don't stand up. And I've been saying it. I've been asking for a, a 60-year-old chief that's from the NYPD. And you know what? It could be any police department. Stand up and talk about the atrocities that are going on. You're going to make $20,000 a month from your pension. What else do you need? But they don't. Right. They don't because they owe favors or someone has dirt on them. Maybe they lack integrity. And John said it. It's not leadership. It's mismanagement. I, I, I don't even want to call them leaders because leaders actually put the, put their troops before they put themselves. Exactly. And, and you're right. It's unfortunate. I mean, I served in the Marine Corps, but we're seeing it in the military, too. It's yeah. it, it's it's a breakdown of these organizations. It, it just and it's said the vision has to come from leadership. Yes. Otherwise, it's just an epic fail. So so Mike, where could we find your book? Like, what's what's the best way that we we could go about? Should we go to Amazon to buy your book? Like, where where should we go for it? Yeah, you can go to Amazon, BarnesandNobles.com, or uh, my website is JDF Information, JDF for Justified Deadly Force Information.com. Uh, there's a link to buy it there. And then it also, I have put memes up there that you can copy and paste to fight the social media warriors. Um, you know, people, those real keyboard warriors, which I know you're saying sometimes you get trolled by people calling you white supremacist and all this. When that happens to me, I've had it recently. All I do is I keep on sending the same pictures of my book and some of my memes to them. So you want to keep getting, you know, people to look at stuff here, keep, keep showing my book cover, keep showing these statistics that show you're a racist, you know, liar. And I'm just trying to give everybody the truth. And, you know, it's a world of difference. Oh, yeah. You're, you're backing up your claims with facts. I mean, I, I, I don't, I don't, I, I think that's great, dude. I, I like, 
I'm I'm super excited. I'm 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 sorry I didn't I I didn't see a book prior to you prior to booking you because we would have we would have both read it first. That's all right. Yeah, yeah. So I'll talk I'm to you guys afterwards. Yeah, yeah. No, no, no. I'm definitely excited to read it though. I mean, can you we know, get can we get a discount? <laughs> if, if, if I could sell it to you in person, yeah, online I have no control over that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. Oh, and that's the other thing. I will never make a dime off this book. Um, the profits when it starts making profits will all be donated to, I, I picked five different police, um, organizations that, uh, support our fallen members, like officer down Memorial page, brotherhood for the fallen, like the shirt here. I got this from Rick Caballero from, uh, the original, he started in Chicago. He had me on his show served twice by choice. So it'll go back to our, to our members and their families. So this isn't for me. This is just to support us, to support the truth, to support our country. Wow, wow! God bless you. That that's all. That's amazing. We we definitely got. We'll we'll. I'll definitely be pushing it out there. So thanks, we, brother. We'll definitely get it out there. Thank you. Uh, you know, we we usually we we always leave off with the guests with the last word. So whatever you know, whatever you want to say, you, you, the the world, the, your kids, whatever whatever your message is. <laughs> uh, I just want to leave you guys with a thank you for you being uh, unfiltered and getting the word out, fighting back. Because so many of our brothers and sisters in blue, they don't feel like they can talk while they're still on the job because just like the military, we don't have the same freedom of speech. So thank you for what you guys are doing every podcast, every every episode. Thanks for having me on. You guys, uh, we appreciate it and stay safe to everybody out there. Mike, thank you. You, you, you. It was a pleasure. I, unlike what John said, I'd love to talk to you for another hour or so. <laughs> Mike, outstanding, really. I, thank you. I just got to go to work tomorrow. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm still working. Yeah, we were tired. <laughs> Mike, you can call it but, sick. But, but seriously, Mike, next article, anytime you want to come on, open and fight, you're always welcome. You know, it, awesome. it was a great interview. I learned a lot. I mean, you know, I didn't learn math, but I learned, you know, I learned <laughs> I let, we I got some good statistics. I will definitely push it out. We'll push your book out, and I'm definitely going to be checking out your your website a lot more now to just go there awesome. for relevant information. So thank you, thank you for coming on, ladies and gentlemen. The great and powerful Mike Simonelli. Mike, thanks, brother. My pleasure, fellas. God bless. Mike, thank you. Semper Fi. Semper Fi, bro. You got it. Take care.